much just for the, the family that we have here, um, just that we can come here and we can be one and one in worship and you would. Um, Father, open our eyes as, as this sermon is um, prepared by Pastor Doug and, and just use him to work through us, Lord. Uh, let nothing get in our way of hearing what we need to hear and not just that, but going out and doing what we need to do because of it. Um, thank you, Lord. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Are you doing well? Okay, so how many of you went on that retreat, clapping one other retreat this weekend? That was really lame. You guys are lousy clappers. It wasn't that good. It was, I was like, yeah, great, whatever. Um, and then uh, for those of you who went on the retreat, it's been great for me just to hear that the way the Lord moved in lives and the things that are happening um, and uh, for those of us that did not go on the retreat, I'm praying that you will fight the spirit of jealousy because you're not in that age group, so whatever. Um, I want to begin this morning uh, by reading the entire passage that we're going to be looking at today. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to turn to the book of Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians now for the better part of this year, and uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading today in verse 21, and you can just follow along with me as I read aloud. And I'm going to read verses 21 all the way down through verse 33. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Every time I think about this topic of marriage, there is a sermon that I heard that comes to my mind. And I'm going to quote from it. Mowage. <laughs> Mowage is what brings us together today. Now, how many of you have no idea why, what that is? How many of you are like, what the heck is that? <laughs> You're like, our pastor has completely lost his mind. So somebody tell them what that is. Princess Bride, Princess Bride greatest movie of all time. Sorry, we're not going to talk about it. Greatest movie of all time. <laughs> so, so I'm serious. Here I am in my study this week, and I'm pouring over Ephesians 5, and I'm trying to figure out 
what does God have to say to us about marriage and what is marriage supposed to look like and what does God have in mind? And every time in my inner voice I hear the word marriage in my head, it always comes out, mowage. And it's because I've seen the movie at least 900 times. And um, when I think about that scene from the movie, I probably should have showed you the video so those of you who don't know what I'm talking about would know what I'm talking about, but there's a wedding scene. And in the wedding scene, there is a guy, and, and he's the pastor. In the uh, credits, when it lists the names of the actors, all that it says about him is impressive clergyman. That's the name of his character. And he is impressive. He is, he is all decked out. He's got on the white robe with all the gold woven into it and the sash, and he has on the pointy hat, you know, and... and um, he stands before them and begins to talk to them about marriage, this great sort of wedding sermon that he has planned, but they don't have time. There's all kinds of things going on, and people are taking over the kingdom and, and all of that, so they, they hurry it along. And he gets, starts getting into this sermon that he obviously has spent so much time and effort preparing, he has all these deep, intense spiritual thoughts to share, and he never gets to share them. And I thought, this is awesome. This is my chance to preach his unpreached sermon. So... So what I want to do today is I want to give the subject of marriage its due respect. Because here's what I've noticed. I have noticed that in all of my years of ministry and all of the couples that I have married, that people um, spend an enormous amount of energy, an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of planning and an even more enormous amount of money for a wedding, right? Any of you who have been paid for a wedding, you know exactly what we're talking about, right? People spend an incredible amount of money, time, energy, and focus on weddings. What I have noticed, however, is that those same people often do not spend very much time, energy, focus, or money on marriage, they're way more interested in the ceremony, the wedding itself, apparently, than they are in the marriage. Now, of course, they would say that's not true. But when I sit down with couples later, what I realize is that there are a whole lot of people who, who got all excited about the idea of being married. There are a whole lot of people who got excited about the idea of having a wedding. And there are a whole lot of people for various reasons who ended up standing in front of a crowd taking vows who really did not understand the depth and the significance of what it is to be married. And so marriages are not planned for nearly as well as weddings are planned for. And to me, that's a terrible shame. And so, if you, you know, we've been going through the book of Ephesians now, and whatever comes up next, that's what I'm preaching on. And so, if you're here today, we're preaching on the subject of marriage because that's what's come up next in the passage. That being said, I want to take my time with this. I was faced with a decision when I came to this passage. I have one of two ways to go. I can either preach one sermon on the passage that I just read to you and do the best that I can to just sort of give you like three easy steps to a better marriage or something like that which is really what I wanted to do, or I can tear the passage apart with you, and we could treat this a little bit more like a Bible study than a sermon, 
And we could really begin to dig in because this passage is talking about some things that, quite frankly, a whole bunch of us don't understand. And if we do understand them, a whole bunch of us are not living out what we understand. And so, whether you are a married person today, and, and you're sitting here going, oh, hey, this will be good. This is a chance for me to hear more about marriage and improve my marriage. Or whether you're a single person who, who thinks, I'd like to be married someday, but I'm not married yet. Or, or whether you're a person who has already been married and is no longer married, either due to divorce or death of, uh, of a spouse or something like that. Whatever your marital status is, what we're going to be studying today is absolutely relevant to you. So if you're single and you think you might be married someday, you should be taking copious notes because the things that we're going to learn from God's Word today are going to save you all kinds of heartache and difficulty. The Bible talks a lot about marriage. So let's go to Proverbs. You see the verses on the, on the screen behind me. There's a, um, a number of passages in Proverbs that talk about marriage. And if you don't know this already, you should know that Proverbs is a book written by King Solomon. And King Solomon is, is known because he has more of something than anybody else who ever lived. What is it? Wisdom. wisdom. God granted him more wisdom. Yeah, he, and somebody I think said wives. He had a lot of those too, <laughs> which makes me question the wisdom. But either way, he, he had a lot of... Just saying, just saying. So anyway, he uh, had a lot of wisdom. And so what Solomon did was in writing, uh, most of the book of Proverbs is written by Solomon, and what he did in writing the book of Proverbs was he basically was writing a letter, if you will, to his son. His son is coming of age, and he wants his son to understand what it is to be a man of God. And so he's writing these memorable little um, poetic sayings, couplets, lines um, that are easy to memorize so that his son can learn these principles that are so important. Let me just read you some of the many, many, many verses in Proverbs on the subject of marriage. 18.22, Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Right, ladies? And obtains favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. In other words, marriage is a good thing. It's good to be married. We're going to get into this more next week. To say that it's good to be married does not mean that everybody needs to be married. It doesn't mean that it's God's will for everyone to be married. It doesn't mean that somehow your life is not complete if you are not married. However, it does say that marriage is a good thing and that if you find a wife, you have found a good thing. Now, if this was a mother writing to her daughter, she would perhaps say, if you find a husband, you find a good thing. But being that it's written by a man to his son, he says, if you find a wife, you find a good thing. Now flip back to chapter 12 of Proverbs, and let's look together at verse 4. Proverbs 12, 4. We get two sides of the coin here. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. Wow. Now go to Proverbs 31. We're going to pick it up in Proverbs 31, verse 10. Proverbs 31, 10. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, 
and he will have no lack of gain. And then, Proverbs 21, verse 9. And this verse is repeated numerous times in Proverbs in various forms, but I'm going to just read you this one. Proverbs 21, verse 9. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. I didn't say it. It says right here. It's better to live in a corner of a roof to live in a house with a contentious woman. Now, it's kind of fun to think about what it might say if Proverbs was written by a mother to her daughter. It might say something different, right? It might say, you know, it is better to live without Pinterest than with a husband who's emotionally unavailable or something like that, right? But here's the point. Whether you're male or female, here's the bottom line. Marriage can be absolutely marvelous or absolutely miserable. And it can be anywhere in between. The key factor is not so much who we marry as it is how we do marriage. And that's a huge misconception that we have. Most of the people that I, I've been doing marriage counseling for the better part of 25 years. It's something that I do most every week. I meet with somebody to talk about their marriage. And um, one of the things that I have seen as a common thread in marriages, at least the marriages that are coming to me for counseling, is this. That when marriages are struggling and people are having a hard time, when you get people to tell you what's going on in their marriage, the perspective of each person is, my marriage would be much better if the other one would just change. That's the general perception. You know, my husband is just not doing this and this and this, and instead he's doing too much of this and this and this, and if he would change, then it would be okay. Can you please talk to my husband and get him to change? Or my wife, she's just like this and she's like this, and you wouldn't believe what she did last week, and oh my gosh, if she would just change, then I would be happy. Why doesn't she just do the things that I want her to do to make me happy? But the key is not so much whether your spouse changes, the key is who you are and what you're doing in your own marriage. There's a, a famous uh, secular author named Robert Fulgham, and he writes numerous books, a lot of bestsellers, and I read a lot of his stuff. Uh, it's just full of sort of wisdom and homespun stories that teach lessons. And, and Fulgham is telling a story in one of his books in which he basically says, um, I have a friend who lives in Crete, the, isle, the island of Crete, off of Italy. And he, he lives there in Crete, and he was born there, he was raised there. His life has been lived basically on this island, and um, he's learning English. And he said, so I was there with my wife, and we spent a week at his house, and we're having vacation, and we're sitting out on his porch, and we're just talking, and he's, he's asking me things about English so that I, he can understand better. And he said... I have a question for you. There's an English phrase that I've heard many times, and I don't really understand what you mean when you say it. Can, can you explain it? And he said, sure. What's the phrase? He said, making love. I, I don't know what that means to you. And Fulgham kind of blushed, and he thought, well, okay, and he explained it to him. And the guy just started laughing. And he said, why are you laughing? And he said, because in our culture, we have the same phrase. But we mean something entirely different. In our culture, all of our marriages are arranged. 
So, so we don't fall in love with somebody and then marry them. We marry them and hope to one day fall in love with them. In fact, the concept of falling in love doesn't exist in our culture, he said. We have the concept of making love. And he said, wherever we have, we see a husband and wife that obviously have some tension between them or there's a little spat going on or something, we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, they're making love. They're, they're building their love. They're figuring this thing out. They are creating a love relationship. And that's helpful because we so are influenced by our, our sort of Western and really American romantic view of love and marriage that oftentimes we don't understand the assignment that we have been given to make love. And God calls us to do that. Now, this is a sermon on marriage. But if you're sitting next to your spouse, your elbows stay in, okay? There's not going to be any of this, and here's why. And I'm going to be really clear about this. This message is not for your spouse. This message is for you, okay? So if you'll just keep your attitude there, this message is not for my spouse. This message is not for my ex. This message is not for anybody but me then God might be able to do some things in our hearts today and change our lives. So we're going to dig into the scriptures, and, and it's going to be treated more like a Bible study than a sermon because this is controversial. This is hard to understand, this issue of submission and how it works out in marriage, and it's important. And so we're going to do the necessary work to try to get this right because our families depend upon this, you guys, because families all across America are in bad shape, Right? And the reason families are in bad shape is because marriages are in bad shape. And the reason that marriages are in bad shape is because we're in bad shape. And so we need to let God come to us with his magnifying glass and his scalpel. And we need to let him come to us and begin to do some surgical work that is going to make a difference. Not in our spouses, but in us. And so we're going to dig in in that way. Another thing I want you to notice is that or, or to understand, just as a foundational principle here, God is always right. Always. He has all knowledge. He has all wisdom. He created us. He created marriage. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your spouse better than, you know, than your spouse knows himself or herself. He knows your future spouse inside and out. God knows what makes cultures work well together. God knows he's right all the time, even when what he has to say is not what our culture has to say, even when what he has to say is not what we want to hear. God is always right. Oh, and by the way, he loves you with an undescribable love. And so when he speaks to us and commands us to live in a certain way, he is doing it for his glory and our good. Amen? We have to take that seriously, and here's the reason. Marriage is scary. And submission within marriage is even more scary. And understandably so, because there's a lot of abuse of authority in our culture. A lot of it. And all of us have experienced it. And we talked about this at length last week. Let me just take a second to say, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, 
you need to go online and listen to that because it's foundational to the sermon that we're preaching today and the, and the sermon you're going to hear next week. So you're not really going to get it if you don't fully get what came last week. You can go to gracepowardy.com and listen or follow our podcast, whatever works for you. But I encourage you to listen because I don't want to re-preach everything I said last time, but, but there's a common misconception. There are various common misconceptions about submission, and one of them is that um, if you are submissive, you will be abused. I mean, if you are submissive, to be submissive is to become someone's doormat. To be submissive is to let someone kick you around and abuse you, and that's why we don't want to be submissive, because none of us wants to be abused. And there's this common mis misconception that where there is submission because of the fact that whoever, whatever human being we're submitting to is imperfect. I don't know if you realize this, but every one of us has exactly the same problem in our marriage. We married a sinner, right? And so, so you marry someone who is imperfect, and now you're going to submit to that person? That's a dangerous thing. But the thing we have to clear up is this misconception about, um, about submission, because biblical submission to people is not without limits. There are limits to the way that we respond submissively to people. There's not a limit to our heart of submission, and I went into this in detail last week. Submission is not an act that you do. It is a condition of your heart, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with humility. And so God calls us to be submissive people in an unlimited way. And yet, even as submissive people, it does not mean that we always obey everyone and that we always put up with whatever anyone is doing to us. That's not what submission is. So we got to blow that out of the water to begin with. There are times when we have to choose not to obey someone, even as submissive people. So let's go to the book of Acts and see how this works. Uh, if you go to your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you're going to come to Acts. And I want you to go to Acts chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me just set the stage for you. What's happened is, this is the beginning of the church. The church is just exploding onto the scene right now. The Holy Spirit has come. Thousands have been swept into the church. The apostles, God is using them to do miracles and healing and casting out demons and preaching and all this is happening. People are coming to know Christ. And that, of course, is a threat to the people who are in authority, right? So the apostles are doing all this and they get arrested for it. And when they get arrested, they get taken and put into jail. And while they're in jail, they're to spend the night in jail, and in the morning, they're to have a hearing. And during the night, an angel comes and opens the door to their jail cell and says to them, go back out to the temple, and in the morning, begin preaching again and declaring the love of Jesus. And that's exactly what they do. Well, the guards wake up in the morning, and the judges wake up in the morning, and they come into court, and they go to get them only to find that they are not there. So we're going to pick this story up in Acts chapter 5 and verse 22. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. 
When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Interesting, right? I wish I had time to just unpack this whole passage, but I don't. So let me give it to you in a nutshell. They get arrested, and they submit to the authority of the arresting officers. They get put in jail. They're awaiting their trial. The Lord busts them out of jail and tells them to go back and preach the name of Jesus, which they have been forbidden to do by the authorities. They go back. They preach the name of Jesus. The authorities hear about it. They go and get them. And it's very interesting how it describes it. It says they took them into custody without violence because they were afraid that they would be stoned because the people were on the side of the apostles. And that the apostles accompanied them back to the courthouse. And when they stood before the council, the council was upset. And they said, listen, to say nothing of breaking out of jail... You have completely disobeyed exactly what we told you. We said, stop teaching in this name, and you have instead filled Jerusalem with the teaching of this name. And their response was, and I think it seems to me quite respectfully, we must obey God rather than men. And there they stood under the authority of those men, not fighting, not rioting, not refusing to do what they were told to do. They simply said, we must obey God rather than men. Now, as you keep reading, you realize the council doesn't know what to do because, after all, we already put them in jail. That didn't work so well. They don't know what to do. They're beginning to realize there is a greater authority who is actually these men are submitting to. My point is this. These men, as far as we can tell in the entire passage, were submissive from the beginning to the end. There's no point in which you see them insisting upon their way, complaining about their rights being trampled, or trying to incite a riot or get people on their side or any of those things. Instead, they simply follow the commands they're given, and they speak when they're asked to speak, and they say, we will submit to God rather than men. There are times when there will be someone who is in legitimate authority over you who requires of you that you stop submitting to God. And when that happens... You have no choice. Because why do we... If you don't understand that, you need to. The only reason you should submit to anybody is because God told us to. The only reason you should submit to anybody is because God told us to. He's, and he's been very specific. He's told us that we need to be submissive people in general. He's told us we need to submit to every governmental authority. And he went so far as to say even the evil one. And then he said, we, we should submit to those who are in authority in the church. He says, we should submit to those who are in authority in the family structure. We should submit to those who are in authority in the employment world. We should submit to those who are in authority wherever legitimate authority is, because we are to be submissive people. And submissive people submit. So God's word calls us to submit to certain people in authority, but submission and obedience are not the same thing. 
Submission is a condition of the heart. Obedience is when someone tells you to do something and you do what they tell you to do. Not every moment of submission requires obedience. Does that make sense? Okay. And we're going to get into that more in the, in the weeks ahead. So the Bible tells us to submit to, say, governing authorities, to our spiritual leaders. And people don't take that to mean that you have to be a doormat of the government or you have to be a doormat of your pastor or the elders of your church or something like that. Let's use the church as an example since it's a handy one for us. The scriptures couldn't be more clear. We won't take you there now, but the scripture couldn't be more clear that God places in the church those men that are in authority and that we're to submit to those in authority in the church. But let's just say that those in authority in the church, the pastor, the elders, let's say that those people um, are not preaching the word of God. Let's say that they're calling us to do things that the Scripture tells us not to do or telling us not to do the things that the Scripture tells us to do. Well, let's say that there is um, some sort of um, conspiracy among the leaders and that they're, they're really going off in a direction they shouldn't be going off in. What can you do? The Scripture says submit. What you can do is you can, with that same submissive heart, go to the leaders of your church and you can confront the issue in a submissive way and and if they will not hear you and if they will not agree and if they will not repent, you also have another choice. You can just leave the church. And that might be exactly what you should do in a situation like that. Okay? So to be submissive doesn't mean that you always obey. However, truly submissive people obey a whole lot more than unsubmissive people. Submission usually leads to obedience. So wherever we're commanded to obey, let's remember, we're commanded to submit to God. And that's the only reason we submit to God-given authority. Um, there's, there's a couple of misconceptions out there about uh, submission that we've been talking about and about marriage as well. And I want to I get some of those out of the way as well because um, one of the things that I, I see people misunderstanding about marriage, especially as Christians, I'm, I'm, this letter is written to Christians, I'm speaking in a Christian church, I don't know if everybody in this room is a follower of Jesus or if you're just checking all this out, but I'm assuming that the vast majority of us here are believers, and this is a message to believers. So if you're an unbeliever, listen, think about what God is, is saying, and consider the, the claims of Scripture, and keep pursuing a uh, relationship with Jesus. But if you're a believer, you need to sit and take notice to what God is saying here. And as believers... There's a lot of misconception about marriage where a whole bunch of us sort of have this idea, and I don't know where it came from, but we have this idea that God has selected the right person for me, and it's my job to find them. That there's some soulmate out there that God created me with that person in mind and created that person with me in mind, and that's a very romantic thing. I'm sure I've probably written it in an anniversary card to my wife at some point. It's a very romantic idea. The problem is it's not only unbiblical, but it's not even reasonable that there's just one person out there that is the person that is the person for me. Um, and, and for a couple of reasons, first of all, remember this, this idea that I'm supposed to find that person, who's he writing to? A culture just like the people in Crete. Their marriages were all arranged. They, this idea that they go out and find somebody to date and then and see who's the right match and then they... They fall in love, and because they fell in love, then they get married. That was, they didn't even know such a notion could exist. They never heard of such an idea. 
their marriages were arranged. For many of them, the very first time they laid eyes on their spouse was at the wedding. Okay? So this idea of having to make love, this idea of having to build a foundation of love in your relationship, that was the only way they knew to think about marriage. They didn't have this idea that I have to go look for the right person. And the other thing is, let's just say that there is one soulmate out there for me. There's one right person, and I need to find this person. Well, I don't know if you've noticed this about yourself, but I'm going to just be honest and tell you what I noticed about myself. Every, I don't know, 10 years or so, I make a mistake, right? Now and then, I make a mistake. What happens if the mistake that you make is in picking your spouse and you didn't pick the right one? Not only is that a bummer for you, but you have set the whole universe in chaos, right? Because if, if Christy and I were made for one another, we're not made for one another, and yet we chose one another and we get married, that's terrible. It's terrible for us, and it's terrible for those poor people that we were supposed to marry, right? And what about the people that they end up marrying who were supposed to marry someone else? The entire universe has thrown off its axis because I married the wrong woman, or better yet, she married the wrong guy right? And you say, what does this have to do with the passage? Why are you telling us this? I'm telling you this because we got to get these misconceptions out of the way, and here's the reason. More often than not, as I said earlier, when somebody has difficulty in their marriage, they think it's the, the spouse's fault. They think it's the spouse's problem. And I have heard someone say so many times, I, I think I just married the wrong person. And I have also heard someone who's involved in an extramarital affair say, I just found my soulmate, but I was already married to someone else. And therefore, it's justified in their mind. See, we justify not living in loving submission with our spouse when we can believe the lie that somehow I missed God's assignment, and I didn't marry the right person. God doesn't tell you to marry the right person. God tells you to become the right person. And that's what he's challenging us with in this passage. So we got to get that misconception out of the way. And by the way, that takes the pressure off. Um, whether you're single or married, it takes the pressure off. Because your purpose is not to find the right person. Your purpose is to be pleasing to God. In this moment right now, your purpose is to be pleasing to God. And in the next moment and the one after that, that's where you're going to find fulfillment. That's where you're going to find joy. That's where you're going to find purpose. That's where you're going to find success. And if you look for success in another person, you will forever be frustrated. And so I just, if you're, if you're single, think about this. If you made a list of qualities of the kind of person you're looking for, and not, not what they do or what they look like. I mean, get past all the stuff. You know, I know everybody's list is I wanted to look like Pastor Doug and all that, but that doesn't always happen, okay? So get past all of that. You're laughing way too hard. That's, I'm a little offended by that, but anyways. <laughs> so, so get past all that superficial stuff. If you were to put on a list this is what I want the character of my future spouse to look like. Things like kindness and generosity 
and spiritual maturity and unselfishness and things like that. And if you could just make a list and come up with this picture of the, of the heart of the person that you would want to marry, once you get that list done, I ask you to do this. Ask yourself this question. Why would that person ever even want to date you, let alone marry you? Seriously. Instead of coming up with the way you want this other person to be, what if you realize that this is how God wants me to be? And then I begin to work on the thing that I can control, which is myself, and I begin to work on my own submission to God so that He changes my life, and I let Him worry about the spouse I already have or the spouse I hope to have one day. God wants to change us. And it's the same for married people. The typical scenario is this. I get with a couple who's in trouble and their, their marriage is not going well. And the husband says to me, I would be more, I, I always make them read this passage, right? And then the husband says, look, I get that. I would be more loving to my wife if she would just fill in the blank. And the wife says, I would be thrilled to submit to my husband if only he was fill in the blank. You see the trap that most of us are in? We're stuck waiting for the other person to change. And guess what? If you've been married, I don't know, like if you've been married maybe 15 seconds, then you know this already. You can't change your spouse, amen? Right? Some of you know this. You've fought the battles and lost. You cannot change your spouse. But what can you change? Yourself. So why do we keep going up against this wall? We're either overtly or covertly trying to change our spouse. Even in our prayers, we're trying to change our spouse. What if your prayers were more about becoming the person that would be the greatest spouse in the world for your spouse instead of praying that your spouse would become the greatest spouse in the world for you. You suppose God would do something amazing? We have to change our perspective. Here's another common misconception among Christians, especially after reading Ephesians 5. The misconception is this. The husband is the boss, and the wife adapts and obeys. That was a good groan. That was a good groan. And you know what, though? Look what it says. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And in case you're going, well, that means only a little bit, it says, as to the Lord. That's what it says. I put on a crash helmet last week when I read it to you, remember? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so obviously then it must mean that the husband is the boss and the wife has to adapt and follow, and obey. But what does the passage say? Look at verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We are to submit to one another. Again, last week's sermon spent the whole sermon on this subject. What does it look like to submit to one another? We are all to live in submission to one another. Submission is a condition of the heart. And what does it say specifically to husbands? Love your wives as Christ loves the church. 
And so if I as a husband would love my wife as Christ loves the church, if I'm going to be like Christ as a husband, then who's going to do the most adapting in my family? Me. Because who adapted more than Jesus because of his love for the church? He was on the throne of heaven. And he adapted all the way to the cross of Calvary to lay down his life for the church that he loves. And so this is not about a husband giving orders and a wife following orders. That concept is not in this passage. This is about two people living in submission to Christ and therefore with a heart of submission toward one another working that out practically in marital life. God does not force us. God does not abuse us. God does not attack our dignity. God serves us at great expense to himself. For God so loved his bride that he gave his only begotten son. If we husbands were loving our wives like that, it would be much easier for our wives to submit and respect us. Now, be careful. Listen to what I said and to what I didn't say. I didn't say if we husbands were living more loving toward our wives, then it would be easy for them to submit and respect us. Because it's not easy. If you had whatever the husband is that you imagine in your mind to be the easiest one to submit to, you would still struggle to submit. And, and we'll tear this apart later next time, but it goes all the way back to the curse in the Garden of Eden. It is a part of the curse that we live in this flesh where we want what we want and we do not want to submit. And it especially speaks of that in the marriage in Genesis and specifically to the wife. It says that she will want to rule over her husband. That's part of the curse. So even if you had the perfect husband, ladies, you would still struggle. But guys, we could make it so much easier on them. And they want to honor God by respecting their husbands. It helps if their husband is worthy of respect. So let's dig into the meaning of these words in this passage. As many of you know, this is a controversial issue even among Bible-believing Christians. And, and there's a couple of ground rules, and I'm going to wrap it up with this, and then we're going to tear it apart beginning next week. Okay? Ground rule number one, as we try to understand what is God's Word actually teaching here. Not what did some preacher say, not what did some book say, not what did some marriage and seminar, uh, seminar on marriage say, but what is this passage actually teaching us? There's a couple of ground rules. First, we have to let the passage speak for itself. We, we're all going to have a problem with this because we all have a bias about these issues. We come to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas and our own bias, and often we come to the Bible with our guard up as if we have to protect ourselves from God, as if God might tell us something in his word that is going to be bad for us. We have to remember that the, the, we can trust God at his word. We can take him at his word. And he is going to always be good, always be loving, always do what's best for us. Second thing we have to understand is this. 
The reason that this is controversial, besides the fact that no one likes to submit, that's a given. But I'm saying it's controversial among scholars. Um, and I'm talking about Bible-believing scholars, not, not just, you know, new Bible critics and that sort of thing. This is not agreed upon among Bible-believing scholars exactly what the point of this passage is. And the big argument among them, among other things, there have been many books written about it, but one of the big arguments is, does the, does the paragraph, if you will, you know this wasn't written in paragraphs, right? They're added. Should the paragraph begin with verse 21 or should it begin with verse 22? That's the big question. In other words, are we talking about everyone submitting to one another and one illustration is wives submitting to their husbands? Or are we talking about marriage as its own separate deal in which it is the wife who is to submit and not the husband? And it's a legitimate, difficult um, hermeneutical challenge to understand that in the passage. So there are really brilliant scholars on both sides of that argument. I think you know where I stand if you heard last week's sermon. I don't think we can get away from what the context shows us, and that is that verse 21 tells us if you're going to live the Spirit-filled life, you must all live it as submissive people. But then it gets into the details of marriage and parent-child relationships and even masters and slaves, all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6. But here's what I want to say, and, and, and I'll close with this. Um, I have a challenge that comes from this passage for both the men and the women. So let me begin with the women. No matter which school of theological thought is right about how this should be interpreted, either way, wives are to submit to their husbands. The only question is whether or not husbands are to submit to their wives. But no matter which school you come from, wives are to submit to your husbands. There is no other way to take this passage. That's what it says. So either you believe that wives have to submit to their husbands or you believe that the Bible is wrong. But those are your two options. It could not be more clear. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Now there's some argument about whether husbands need to submit to their wives. But guess what, wives? You can't get away from this. So... I'm saying this with all love and respect to the women in the room. Take a deep breath. Put aside preconceived ideas about what you thought it means to submit to your husband and be open to whatever the loving God of the universe is telling you is actually best. And we're going to dig into it next week. And we're going to really pull this apart and we're going to look at it as students, and we're going to ask ourselves, what is he calling women to, and what is he not calling them to? And we're going to ask, what is he calling men to, and what is he not calling them to? Now, you know that I believe that we're to be submissive to one another, but I do have a challenge for the men, because whatever this passage means about you submitting to your wife, there's no question that you are commanded by the God of the universe to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Is there any higher calling than that? That is challenging, my friends. That is difficult, my brothers. And you know that because the lady sitting next to you knows that. It's difficult. And so I'm going to ask the men to make the same commitment to God's word and his loving character as I'm asking the women to make. That whatever it means when it says love your wives as Christ loves the church, you need to do it. 
Because you're submitting to God, and he's commanding you to do it. So I'm not going to just throw this out there, make everyone feel guilty and lousy about themselves, and leave it hanging. Next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to tear it apart, and we're going to make sure that we understand what it's actually teaching, and then we're going to apply it to our lives, and then we're going to watch our marriages flourish, and we're going to see God do things that never would have happened if we didn't trust him enough to apply his word to our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together as we prepare to depart. Father, your word is so good, so pure, so delicious, so